I used to get a cold and a cough and then laryngitis two, three times a year. And it was not a big deal. It was just to be expected because I would catch the kids' germs. And so I didn't really have any idea that I was really sick. Um, my daughter and I went to dinner on a Sunday night. And by Thursday morning, I was in the ICU at St. Joe's. I was that sick that quickly. Pete, my fiance, called me up on Wednesday and he said, are you at home alone or is Lauren there? And I said, no, she's not here right now. And he said, then I'm coming over to pick you up and I'm taking you to the ER. It took him till the next day to convince me that I was really sick. And by that Thursday, it, it hit me. I was confused. I could barely stand up. I couldn't sit up any longer. It really had hit me that I was sick, but I had no idea how sick I really was. Welcome to Screwed Up Moments, the podcast where it's okay to fail and it's okay to try again. I'm your host, Danny. In today's online and social media landscape, The term positivity gets thrown around a lot, especially because of viral short stories such as this one. Jerry was the kind of guy you love to hate. He was always in a good mood and always had something positive to say. When someone would ask him how he was doing, he would reply, if I were any better, I would be twins. He constantly emphasized the power of choice in his life. He would say things like, each morning I wake up and say to myself, Jerry, you have two choices today. You can choose to be in a good mood or you can choose to be in a bad mood. I choose to be in a good mood. Each time something bad happens, I can choose to be a victim or I can choose to learn from it. I choose to learn from it, etc, etc. However, as the story goes, one day Jerry met with a tragic incident. He had left the back door of his restaurant open and was held up at gunpoint by three armed robbers. He was shot and left to die, but fortunately was quickly found and was rushed to the local trauma center, where he went through 18 excruciating hours of surgery and weeks of intensive care, eventually being released with bullet fragments still in his body. When asked about his thoughts during the incident, Jerry remarked that while he initially kept up his positive attitude, The expressions on the faces of the doctors and nurses sparked fear into him. Their eyes were wide and panicked, and Jerry felt that he needed to do something. And so, when a nurse asked him if he was allergic to anything, Jerry simply replied, Yes, bullets! The tension within the operating room immediately lightened up, and over the laughter of the doctors and nurses, he told them, I am choosing to live, operate on me as if I am alive, not dead. Now, make no mistake, this story is itself pretty cheesy and contrived, if not wholly unbelievable. And yet, despite what you may think about the cruelness of the world where tragedy and suffering and screwed up moments abound, these stories of positivity are not as uncommon as you might think. And in these uncertain times and difficult circumstances, perhaps we could learn a thing or two about positivity and keeping your head up in the face of unyielding difficulty. In today's episode, we kick off Season 2 of the Screwed Up Moments podcast with just such a story one which features a paragon of positivity, Anne McCallion. 
Hi, my name is Anne, and this is my screwed up moment. <laughs> When you did the presentation, right,、um, on resilience a couple of weeks ago, the one thing that struck me was your positive attitude, like just brimming with you know you constantly smiling even through all the bad moments. And I'm just so curious: is was this something that you always had, or was this something that happened as a result of that incident? I think I've always been kind of positive and upbeat,、mm. and a lot of people have told me that I'm a very strong person. And I, truthfully, never really thought I was a strong person. But I think that when you're involved in the middle of a trauma or a tragedy, you find that strength in yourself.、Mm. And then I just continued with the positive part. It, it was my way to get through.、Mm. Some of the words that people have used to describe you include optimistic. Kind-hearted, you called yourself、uh, Type A,、yes. I think. <laughs> yes. <laughs>、uh, upbeat and cheerful. Yeah. So,、uh, where do you think you got that from?、Um, my mother was always pretty upbeat and happy.、Um, my dad passed away from MS when、um, he was in his early forties. I was sixteen, but my mom always, in the midst of all that, of taking care of him and and a lot of issues. Was very positive, so I guess, I guess I learned a lot of that from her. And what and what was that、uh, experience like? I mean, it must have been hard for your family with your dad passing. Oh,、away. definitely. My father had actually been sick since the time I was about eight, so almost from the time my brother was born,、mm. we didn't have a dad like everybody else. You know, for a while he was in a nursing home, and he had to walk with crutches.、Um, And MS is a very debilitating disease, and it, that was eventually he passed away from that heart attack related to it.、Mm. And so during this period when your dad was sick, you said your mom maintained a sort of positive attitude throughout, right? What were some of the things that、uh, she did to sort of maintain this attitude? I think that she tried to maintain a a normal home environment,、mm. uh, which was difficult because she worked, and at that point, many women didn't work. But she worked, and then she'd leave work, and in the afternoon she'd go see my dad, and then she would come home, and so I had extra responsibilities because she wasn't really home in the afternoon, and so I did laundry and I started dinner and things like that. But fortunately, I didn't—I don't recall thinking it was a burden. I just kind of thought of it as a challenge, and you know, let's see if I can do a really good job on this. I don't know why, but I did. <laughs> That's where the Type A personality guess,、yeah, well, kicks in. Definitely the Type A, right? <laughs> <laughs> were you were you always that way ever since like a, a child or a kid? Or yes, I was always, I guess, what you called overachiever, and I think part of that was because I felt badly for my mom. I knew she had a lot of stress as a result of my dad being ill, so I wanted to do things to please her that I thought would please her and make her life easier. So I tried to be a really good student. And to me, I had to be a straight A student, which was kind of it. That was very stressful, <laughs> but that was a, a self-imposed kind of thing. Right, right, right. And even when I taught, a girl across the hall said, "You know, there are three of us here who are overachievers. We're always prepared. We do a great job. The students love us." And I said, "You know, I never thought of us as that." She says, "Oh, come on, Anne, really?" <laughs> so it was kind of funny, and I thought, "Oh, I guess so." So that's the protagonist of this story, Anne McCallion, the positive Type A overachiever who went through a difficult upbringing due to her dad's illness. And as she grew older, she not only carried on her mother's positive attitude, but also her career in teaching as well. 
I knew that I wanted to be involved in education. It just seemed like something that I wanted to do. Initially, I thought about teaching French, but for some reason I decided I gravitated toward elementary school because I just really liked that age. Mm. I think you can have a big impact the younger the children are that you start with. And make an impact she did, at least considering the overwhelmingly positive feedback that she received for her work. It's just a wonderful experience because I generally got really positive feedback from the children and their parents. They were interested in school. And so that just kind of made every day easier because the students were pleased and happy. Mm. And I know once I was sick, I must have received a thousand letters from students. And it just, I mean, I still get chills when I think of that. It was, you know, thank you for being my favorite teacher. You taught me about this in social studies, and I really loved it. And all that positive feedback made me, of course, want to do a better job. And it was just heartwarming that the children were so um, compassionate. I mean, there are people I know who hate their jobs, but I loved my job. I was so... <laughs> it's funny, when I was when I was in the hospital, I remember the first thing I thought was, I want to go home and see my family, and I want to go back to teaching. Because the the students that I had that particular year were just such a wonderful group. At that point, little did Anne know just how true her words would become and how compassionate her students could actually be. But in order to get there, she had to first go through her own trials and difficulties, which, incidentally enough, started in the classroom. I used to get a cold and a cough and then laryngitis two, three times a year. And it was not a big deal. It was just to be expected because I would catch the kids' germs. And so I didn't really have any idea that I was really sick. Um, my daughter and I went to dinner on a Sunday night. And by Thursday morning, I was in the ICU at St. Joe's. I was that sick mm. that quickly. Um, as I said, I had no idea I was that sick. But Pete, my fiance, called me up on Wednesday. And he said, are you at home alone or is Lauren there? And I said, no, she's not here right now. And he said, then I'm coming over to pick you up and I'm taking you to the ER. And I said... No, 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 I'm not that sick. <laughs> I said, and the problem with people who to go to the ER is they just clog it up. And the doctors and the nurses have to pay attention to people who just have colds. And I'm not going to the ER. So he said, I'm picking you up anyway. So it took him till the next day to convince me that I was really sick. And by that Thursday, I, it, it hit me. I was confused. I could barely stand up. I couldn't sit up any longer. It really had hit me that I was sick, but I had no idea how sick I really was. What Anne thought was just a common cold turned out to be something much worse. And were it not for her fiancé taking her to the emergency room, she probably wouldn't be sitting in front of me right now. So I had developed strep A, double pneumonia, and sepsis. And then that went into septic shock. Mm. And when I arrived at the hospital, they said I had about a 15% chance of survival. Right. And that was only in that, that short few days since yes. you caught the cold. Really. It was literally a matter of four days. And I really knew very little about sepsis at that point. But mm. it really happens so quickly. I guess, I mean, once I went to the hospital, I was so sick that they diagnosed it right away. And so once you were at the hospital, do you remember much of what went on or what the doctors told you other than, you know, you have a 15% mm. chance of survival? Not a whole lot. I just, I was sitting in the wheelchair and I got up and I laid down on the floor 
And somebody came over and said, you know, you're really not allowed to lie on the floor. It's not safe. And I said, I can't sit up anymore. So they realized immediately how sick I was. So they took me back right away. They said, we're going to try to help you breathe. And of course, my lungs were so full, I was just <gasps> trying to get air. And they said, you need to slow down and take and not try to take such deep breaths. But I really, I couldn't. So they intubated me. And I do remember that that was not pleasant. But, you know, they said, we have to do something to help you breathe. Yeah. And beyond that, I don't remember anything for at least two weeks because they put me in a coma. So just to summarize the events leading up to this point, Anne had been teaching as per usual, started having a cough which became worse, and was then taken to the emergency room where she was diagnosed with strep A, double pneumonia, sepsis, and septic shock. Strep A is a bacterial infection which can cause pain and swelling in the throat, while double pneumonia is a lung infection that inflames both of your lungs, making it very difficult to breathe. Sepsis, in turn, is a life-threatening illness caused by your body's response to infections, i.e. Anne's pneumonia and strep A. It is when the immune system in your body goes into overdrive trying to fight these infections, which results in a chemical imbalance and inflammations all throughout the body. Finally, septic shock happens when sepsis leads to dangerously low blood pressure as a result of the inflammations and infections creating small blood clots preventing adequate blood flow to the body's organs. In a worst-case scenario, sepsis and septic shock spreads throughout your vital organs, resulting in multiple organ failure and ultimately death. In Anne's case, while she was fortunate enough to have received treatment before her illness reached that stage, it still came at a cost that would completely change her life. And when was it that, you know, the doctors uh, told you about that you had to get your arms and legs um, amputated? Actually, I have to say I'm appreciative of the fact that they kept me on a, a lot of drugs that prevented me from, I mean, they were to help me improve, but also didn't allow me to think so much about what was going to happen because mm. if somebody had said, you have a choice, we're going to either amputate all your limbs or you can die, I know I would have just said, let me die because I couldn't imagine all the obstacles that there would be and I couldn't imagine that I personally would survive and I really I didn't know that my legs were going to be amputated because um, I did say to Pete one day why are my hands and feet black I mean they were totally black mm. up to the ankles and up to the arms because they had developed a gangrene mm. because the blood flow didn't get that far and he said well why don't we ask the doctor because <laughs> he knew what it meant but I wasn't able to make that connection I saw that they were black but it I didn't realize that that was bad or dangerous right so um, I guess a couple weeks after that they amputated one leg and then a week later the other one and I was I didn't know they were going to do that my children signed for that because I was not really in a condition to sign for right. it I just remember that going into the OR and then, I remember the pain afterwards, but even after they had both of them were amputated, I still don't think that I really realized what was going to happen. Because you were still under the medication. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So it started with your legs first? Yes. Both okay. the one leg below the knee and then the other leg below the knee. And then about a week after that, they came to me and they said, we need to amputate both of your arms below the elbow. And I was a little bit alert then. They said, would you like us to do one and then you can come back a couple days later and we'll do the other one or do you want them done at the same time? 
And I did remember the pain after the operation. So I said, oh, do them at the same time. <laughs> so I was, you know, I was alert enough for that, but I still didn't think that I understood what was ahead, that I was a quad amputee at that point. The first time I met Anne was when she gave a presentation on the topic of resilience. There she shared her story, talked about the difficulties of being a quad amputee, and the many challenges and obstacles that she has faced and overcome. However, the thing that I remember the most from that presentation was actually a picture. It was taken the day after her last round of amputations. Anne had no arms and legs at this point. She had been through this ridiculous, crazy, unexpected, unfortunate ordeal, was in her hospital room sitting up on her bed, and there she was, smiling. Was this the... That photo that you had sitting up on bed, you know, smiling. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> during your presentation, you showed this photo where you sat up in bed. Um, I think you mentioned you just had the operation or something mm-hmm. and you were just smiling. So, <laughs> it, <laughs> I mean, did it not hit you yet or? Actually, at that point, I was in at Kernan, which is a rehab hospital. And I guess I realized, well, everybody there was so positive and upbeat. The nurses, and I had a physical therapist and an occupational therapist. And they were all so upbeat about it. And I remember it never really dawned on me to think, I have to learn to walk again. I have to learn to feed myself. I have to learn to dress myself. I just thought, well, when I get my prosthetic legs, I'm going to learn to walk again. It was kind of like a challenge. I was looking forward to the next step. And they say that there are five steps of grief. And I can say, fortunately, I don't think I ever went through with them, unless I'm still in denial, (laughs) which is highly possible. But um, I think I was just glad that I was there and my family was there every day and friends would visit. And it was just a really positive atmosphere there. So, um, I mean, there were certain certainly times when I was not happy. I was either in pain or... What suddenly dawned on me that somebody had to feed me every day. Right. Um, you know, I couldn't brush my teeth. I couldn't do anything. And every once in a while, it, that would dawn on me the reality of I couldn't do anything for myself. And that was really scary. Right. Um, but in that photo, I was having a good day. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I just found that remarkable because it's like, I think you're one out of, I don't know, a million, yeah. maybe even a billion people in that situation who would have been caught smiling there. Yeah. And you could see it wasn't like a sort of faint smile, right. you know, it was like a, a real genuine sort of, you know, eye smiling and everything. I think it also might have been, I don't know, there was another one similar to that. And the way they weighed me was they would kind of lift me in this little hoist right. to weigh me. And I said, I feel like a fish in a market. You know, <laughs> like somebody's going to buy me by the pound. And I think it was, you know, every time that they brought that in, I just kind of laughed thinking of myself as a big fish. <laughs> yeah, but that's, I just find that remarkable. But um, if, if you don't mind, um, I just want to sort of bring you back a little bit. You mentioned earlier that if you're fully conscious and knowing that it was a choice between dying or getting your limbs removed, that you would have chosen dying. Right. Right. Why why do you think that? 
well, if you said that just about anybody, you know, we're mm. going to cut off your arms and your legs, you know, you want to do that or you want to die. It just, I couldn't imagine how I would overcome all the obstacles. And I think that's why I said, had anybody asked me, I would have just said, I'd rather die. That's just the way I felt. But now, of course, things are going well, and I'm able to do a lot of the things that I did previously, um, met a lot of wonderful people, and uh, realized how fortunate I am compared to a lot of other people. Following the amputation, right, um, physically, what does it feel like to have the arms and legs removed? Initially, it was just the feeling that I couldn't do anything. I kept thinking, well, where are my fingers? You know, what? Mm-hmm. where are my fingers? How come I can't do this? Um, I knew eventually that they, I would have a have prosthesis so that I could do things. But it's interesting. Uh, some people who have amputations have something called phantom pain. Because the nerves are, are cut off, but they're not gone, there's still that sensation. So every once in a while, I will feel my ankle. Mm. I'll think, oh, my ankle really hurts. And Pete laughs. He said, you know, you don't have any ankles. I said, I know, but I feel that it's there. So every once in a while, I would have that feeling, which is really strange. But other than that, it's just something's missing that you really need. Right, right. In terms of uh, sort of maybe emotionally or psych- uh, psychologically then, how did having these amputations uh, impact you? What was your immediate reaction to that? Obviously, I was really upset. I had to deal with the pain. And then, as I said, I, I viewed a lot of things as a challenge. But still, in the back of my mind was, how am I going to ever do this? Hmm. Um, you know, who's going to help me? And as I said, my, you know, my children, my fiancé, just it was as if I was enveloped in a cocoon and everybody just helped me. Um, They didn't let me feel that I couldn't do things. In a way, I mean, my family really doesn't treat me any differently. Mm. They, um, my son wanted to go deep sea fishing and he said, come on, mom, let's go deep sea fishing. And I just looked at him. I said, you know, I can't swim and I'll probably drown if I fall in the water. And he said, well, we would come get you, (laughs) you know? And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, and we go out to dinner and, um, all my friends just kind of know the ones that I go out with regularly. If I decide I really want a steak, they will just come over and cut it up for me. Hmm. I mean, they're just so wonderful and they don't make a big deal of it. They just do it for me. And I think all that really helps. What, what was it like sort of trying to relearn, maybe getting used to the prosthetics mm. or trying to uh, getting familiar with your new conditions and, and so on? Somehow I was very optimistic, obviously naive about how easy everything would be. I mean, initially I thought, oh, in three months I can go back to work. Well, in three months I wasn't even walking. I mean, who was I kidding? Um, but I guess that was good because, to be honest, had I realized how difficult it would be, I might have just said, I'm just not going to try this. No. But um, when I was at Kernan and I had my prosthetic legs, I was there while they fitted me for them there so I could walk. And the funny thing was, I would get in my electric wheelchair, and I would take my two legs and put them on one on either side and drive myself down to the gym because I couldn't get the prosthetic legs on. I mean, it, it was really a challenge initially if you haven't done that before. Right. And once I got them on, I was able to walk with a walker, although I do remember as they were getting me ready to wear prosthetic legs, I'd been sitting all the time. I had never um, gotten up on my knees. Mm. And when they told me to get up, 
up on my knees. I said, you're kidding. And I had to have three people kind of lift me up mm. because it was, I mean, I, I felt nauseous. It was such an experience. And I remember thinking, if I can't even get up on my knees, how am I going to walk on legs? And that was really scary. The other thing that was, it was scary was when, and I think I mentioned this in my talk, the one nurse was very honest and she said, it really won't be too hard to learn to walk. But when you get your arms, it's going to be a lot more challenging because you have to learn to do everything all over again. You have to learn to eat, put your clothes on, go to the bathroom, everything. And so I did have prosthetics while I was in the hospital. And so they, you know, did all kinds of games and things for me to to practice with my hands. But that is the biggest challenge. And there are days that I do have down days, and I'll just say to Pete, I really need my hands back. I don't care about my legs, but I really want my hands back. And so we kind of deal with it with humor. Um, you know, I'll ask him to do something, and I'll say, you know, how come that was so easy for you? He says, well, I have hands, you know. <laughs> and so we all just kind of joke about it because it's, you know, if you can't laugh about it, you might cry. Like my son will say, Mom, could I lend you a hand? And again... If it's my immediate family, that's fine. I don't think that I'd be too happy with people that I didn't know real well. <laughs> yeah. But with my immediate family, it's fine. I mean, it, it doesn't really bother me. It's, it is a challenge, and there are certainly times that I have bad days, and I'm just, I get very frustrated because I can't do something. But then I just keep trying, and I keep trying to do it in a different way. And so that's a learning experience. And then sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. And so began Anne's long road to recovery, filled with plenty of struggles, trips to the rehab center, relearning simple motor skills, and basically just trying to revert back to a regular life. And at this point, while you can see some similarities between her story and Jerry's, you know, the yeah bullets guy from earlier in the episode, I think the differences are a lot more telling. With Jerry, the message just seemed to be that having a positive attitude was the only thing you needed i.e. when presented with a choice, just choose the positive option, right? But in Anne's case, although she did maintain her usual positive self throughout her ordeal, that wasn't the whole story. There were real moments of struggle, moments of self-doubt and worry, and most important of all, she always had a strong support network to help her through this incredibly difficult transition. Unlike Jerry, it wasn't just about having a positive attitude alone, but also having positive people around you who could lift your spirits up or pick you up when you get down. These were Anne's doctors and nurses at the rehab facility, her family who took great care of her, and her friends who happily accommodated to Anne's new circumstances. Of course, this is not to say that attitude isn't important. Maintaining positivity in the face of adversity is absolutely vital, if not incredibly difficult. It's just that this narrative of, quote-unquote, why don't you just be positive is, in my view, extremely patronizing and unrealistic. In that sense, being positive is at its most beneficial when your positivity draws others to help and support you through your challenges. You could probably do it alone, sure, but I bet you'd appreciate every bit of help that you can get. And so, just to wrap up the episode, there is still one more supporting member, or shall I say supporting group, in Anne's story that I think really deserves special mention. My name is Casey Brown. I'm 10 years old. I just wanted to explain 
why I wanted to fundraise for my third grade teacher, Mrs. McCallion. I wanted to fundraise f for Mrs. M because she, I felt devastated when I heard she had all her limbs amputated. I was thinking, why is nobody helping her? Then it hit me. Why don't I fundraise for her? So I talked to a close family friend. She told me about crowdfunding. And when she heard the story, she was astonished how Mrs. McCallion had good spirits and nothing brought her down. So I told my classmates. They were super excited. And that's how the Driving Mrs. M project began. So, of course, one of the big stories that was covered regarding your recovery was one of your students, Casey Brown. Yes. Oh. <laughs> Who actually helped to raise money for you so that you could get a new car fitted uh, for your needs. Yes. Yeah. So could you talk about that? She is just incredible. I, I still get, you know, kind of chills when I think about her. I just went, she's a senior in high school now. I just went to hear her senior speech. Mm. She was eight when this happened, and she wanted to have a fundraiser so that I could take lessons to learn to drive and then get a car and have it fitted. So Casey and her friends had bake sales, lemonade stands. Uh, they made jewelry. Then Casey's mom had a, a silent auction and a dinner at a restaurant, and they donated a lot of the proceeds to me. So I can only say that they that, that particular class had a, a group of wonderful leaders who were very compassionate and really make me think there's hope for the future of the world. When you, you look at some leaders and you think, oh my gosh, but Casey and so many of her friends, they just stepped up and they became leaders at eight years old. Did you ever think, you know, that they would come and help you in this way? No. I mean, my students were wonderful. And I, you know, when I was in the hospital, I thought, well, you know, maybe they'll send flowers or cards. But I had no idea. Casey did call and she said, we would like to do something to help you. Would you like a dog? And I thought, a dog? Oh, my gosh. You know, what, what I look at? You know, I didn't say that to her, but I thought, a dog? You have to take it out. You have to walk it. I can't take care of myself. How do I take care of a dog? And she said, well, your dog could be trained to put the wash in the dryer and, you know, open drawers for you and everything. And I thought about it, and I said, you know, Casey, what I really want to do is be able to come back and teach, and I need to learn to drive first. So that's how their focus became raising money for driving lessons and the modifications. Um, and that's why the video, that documentary that a, fr a friend of her mom's is doing is called Driving Mrs. M. Yeah. So it's all about how those students, everything that they did to help me. And um, it's just a wonderful story. I can't wait till the movie comes out. And so with that brings the end to this episode of the Screwed Up Moments podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in and much thanks to Anne McCallion for sharing her incredible story. It has been eight or so years now since her screwed up moment, and in that time, she has learned to live with her new conditions and has also contributed to the amputee community through conferences, mentorship, speaking engagements, and so on. If you'd like to learn more about her and the documentary filmed around Casey Brown and her classmates' fundraising efforts, I will leave the links in the episode description. Do check them out. 
As usual, the Screwed Up Moments podcast is brought to you by the Singaporean Social Enterprise Happiness Initiative, an organization that advocates for happiness and well-being through their message that happiness is a choice. Production and editing was done by me, Danny Cordy, on behalf of Fable Productions. Episode music was sourced from Blue Dot Sessions, and the theme song was composed by Rico Lowe. If you enjoyed listening to the Screwed Up Moments podcast, you can help out the show by sharing it amongst your friends or by subscribing and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Otherwise, if you have any questions, suggestions, feedback, or if you have your own Screwed Up Moments story to share, you can drop us a message through the email dcordy at fableproductions.com. That's D-K-O-O-R-D-I at fableproductions.com or through the various social media links in the description. Once again, this has been your host, Danny, for the Screwed Up Moments podcast, reminding you that it is okay to fail and it is okay to try again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>